0: four and six years old he had dusty blonde hair and brownish green eyes he was wearing only a pair of underpants white with blue and green pinstripes he weighed about 50 pounds he hadn't been dead long a day or two at most there was no identification on the body and no obvious sign of injury no one knew the child's name a photograph of the dead boy tastefully retouched his hair tasseled his eyes shut his lips slightly parted, was distributed to the local media in hopes that someone could help identify him. For a while, the police theorized that a vehicle might have run off the road. A narrow bridge, part of State Highway 34, bisects the pond, which is officially known as Lint Slough, and a city road winds about its perimeter. Maybe the rest of the boy's family, perhaps tourists, were still entombed in a sunken car. This would explain why no one had come forward to identify the body. There were no skid marks on the road, however, and no oil slick in the water, and the bridge's concrete railing was intact. Three days later, the local sheriff's office dive team performed an underwater search of the pond, hoping to discover a clue to the boy's identity. Near the cement pylons of the State Highway 34 bridge, in seven feet of water, the divers made a curious find a pillowcase. The pillowcase was printed with characters from the Rugrats television cartoon. Inside it was a large rock. Later in the day, just after noon, the divers made another discovery, the body of a young girl. She had blonde hair and pale blue eyes. She was younger than the boy, but had the same slightly upturned nose and the same rounded cheeks. She, too, was dressed only in a pair of underpants. As with the boy, her body displayed no signs of trauma. Tied to the girl's right ankle was a pillowcase, this one with a floral print. Inside the pillowcase was another large rock. The weight had held the girl's body underwater. The boy, it seemed clear, had been similarly weighted, but had slipped free of his pillowcase and floated to the surface. The discovery of a second dead child initiated the most extensive criminal investigation in the history of Lincoln County, Oregon. Every child in the 2,000-person town of Walpark was checked on. No one was missing. Police departments throughout the West Coast were alerted about the unidentified bodies. None could provide a lead. Agents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation searched national databases of missing children. There were no matches. The mood in Waldport was one of bafflement and fear. Christmas decorations were everywhere and two children were dead and nobody knew if a killer was living among them. Some answers were finally provided by a woman named Denise Thompson, who had babysat the children. She had looked after the kids Thompson told investigators on Saturday evening, December 15, four days before the first body was found she'd seen the photograph of the boy, which had been released to the media. Her husband contacted the sheriff's office, and shortly after the girl's body was located, the couple went to the morgue and made the identifications. The boy was named Zachary Michael Longo. He was a few weeks shy of his fifth birthday. The girl was his younger sister, Sadie Ann Longo, three and a half years old. Still missing from the family was another sister two-year-old Madison Jean Longo, as well as the children's parents, Mary Jane Irene Longo, 34 years old, and Christian Michael Longo, 27. The family lived in the town of Newport, 12 miles north of Lint Slough. The Longos were new to the region. They had moved to Oregon from Ohio three months before. The whereabouts of the other three members of the Longo family were unknown. Denise Thompson told investigators that she had eaten lunch with Christian Longo on the very afternoon that his son's body was found. They'd met that Wednesday at two o'clock, a few hours after Zachary had floated to the surface of Lint Slough, at the Fred Meyer department store, where both Longo and Thompson worked. At the time, Thompson had not yet heard of the boy's discovery, and neither, apparently, had Longo. In fact, As Thompson informed the sheriff's office, while at this lunch, Longo revealed that his wife had just left him for another man. Mary Jane had taken their three children, Longo said, and flown to Michigan. This news came as a shock to Thompson. She and her husband had become friends with the Longos and had not sensed that anything was amiss. Officers promptly searched the Longos' last known residence, a rental condominium on Newport Yukina Bay. It appeared as though the family had abruptly moved out. No notice had been given to the condominium's manager. The rent was left unpaid. The condominium's furnishings were still there, but all the family possessions were gone except for two stuffed animals—a Clifford the Dog and a Scooby-Doo, which were found in a closet. A television set and a microwave oven, both owned by the condominium, were missing. Many of the Longo's personal belongings, including infant clothing, family photos, woman's clothing, and a wallet containing Mary Jane Longo's driver's license, were found in a nearby dumpster. In the photographs, the Longo children appeared happy and healthy. December 27th, eight days after the first body had been found, just below a wooden ramp leading to docks where dozens of sailboats were moored, the divers retrieved two large, dark green suitcases one of the suitcases appeared to have a bit of human hair emerging from the zipper inside bent into a fetal position was the body of mary jane longo she was nude a mixture of blood and water was seeping from her nose and mouth later the medical examiner determined the cause of death to be head trauma and strangulation the second suitcase was also opened Inside was a pile of clothing, a five-pound scuba diving weight, and the body of two-year-old Madison Longo. There was no blood on her body and no obvious injury. She was wearing a frog-patterned diaper. She'd been hit on the head and strangled, according to the medical examiner, and placed in the suitcase and dropped into the water. The story that resulted in my firing from the New York Times, was supposed to be about child slavery and chocolate. It was assigned by the magazine's editors, who mailed me a package of materials from a London-based humanitarian agency called Anti-Slavery International. In the package was a videotape of a documentary entitled Slavery, which had been produced by a pair of highly regarded British filmmakers, Kate Blewett and Brian Woods, and shown on British television. The film explained that about half of the world's coca beans, the primary ingredient in chocolate, are grown on plantations in the central valleys of the Ivory Coast in West Africa. Many of these plantations, according to the documentary, are worked by teenage and pre-teenage boys who are trafficked in from poorer neighboring countries, such as Mali, Benin, and Burkina Faso. Rather than being paid for their work, these boys are enslaved. They labor from dawn to dusk, They are scarcely fed. They are locked each night in cramped, bedless rooms. They receive no medical care and no money. They are frequently whipped. When you're beaten, one boy says in the film, according to the subtitles, your clothes are taken off and your hands tied. You're thrown on the floor and then beaten, beaten really viciously, twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. Runaways who are captured, he added, are sometimes pummeled. To death the documentary stated that nearly every plantation in the ivory coast uses slave labor and said the film we who live in wealthy countries and eat chocolate bars are directly responsible in one scene a young boy stared blankly into the camera and when asked what he'd like to say to people who eat chocolate responded they enjoy something i suffered to make i worked hard for them but saw no benefit they are eating my flesh. It was a powerful and haunting film probing what was clearly an important topic. My editor told me that this was expected to be a cover article. I had recently signed an exclusive contract with the New York Times Magazine and had, in the past year, written three cover stories. One detailing the ill-fated voyage of a boat crowded with Haitian refugees another about the lives of a group of Palestinian teenagers in the Gaza Strip, and a third describing the international black market in human organs. Before signing on with The Times,